in introducing our first speaker, it is a, an introduction that in one sense requires really no introduction at all, and in another sense requires some familiarity and some introduction so that those of you that knew are new may be able to enjoy and understand a little bit more our first speaker. Personally, and those of us that are members of, of Al-Anon owe a debt of gratitude to this individual. This individual is the, one of the co-founders of the Al-Anon program. She is going to share with us today some of the history of the beginning of Al-Anon and some of the, the pre going on before it actually organized into the, the program of Al-Anon and then share some of her experience, strength, and hope, of which she has much. <laughs> and share some of her growing pains with the program of Al-Anon as it has continued to grow over the years, and she's been able to watch a long history of Al-Anon grow. And then to share with us some special, small memories and experiences that she had with her husband, Bill W., who, again, most of you are very familiar with because you're here in this room today. <laughs> and I would like to say that it is with spiritual gratitude that all of us owe a special thanks to this lady and to her husband for the program and the fellowship of AA Al-Anon and Alateen. Otherwise, none of us would be here today sharing in this marvelous experience. Lois is one of the co-founders. The other one is with us here too, um, not at the podium, but here in the room with us today, uh, Anne. I'd like to, at this time, introduce to you Lois W., one of the co-founders of Al-Anon. to be here with you all today at this roundup and it's my very first time I've been at a roundup and my very first time that I've received such a thing. <laughs> and in the course of my talk I'll tell you a little bit about how I deserve to be a member of the first chapter. <laughs> you know that your laughing here and your happy faces is one of the greatest things I think that 
there is in AA and Alateed is the joy and the happiness that we receive by being together. It is a, a terrific, terrific thing to feel the comradeship and the joint inspiration that we do here together and the fun. The fun, I think, is a very, very important part that we get out of our three big A's. A.A. Alamon <clears throat> Well, I've been asked to tell you a little bit about my own story, and it begins way back when Bill and I were engaged. And I was very, very proud of him because he never touched a drop of liquor. <laughs> he would go with the boys to the saloons. They called them saloons in those days instead of bars. And he would have sarsaparilla, a birch beer, or some soft drink of those days while they had their beer. And I thought, what strength of character. <laughs> How wonderful he is. And, because I've always kept that idea ever since then, but not exactly for that purpose, that reason. But <clears throat> we were married, and it was way back in the First World War, and Bill was an officer stationed at New Bedford, Massachusetts. And that was quite a social town, and they gave lots of parties for the officers on the post. And <clears throat> I used to kid Bill and tell him that it was the gals that threw him, that he could resist the boys asking him to have a drink, but he could not resist the girls. <laughs> so to my great consternation, when I moved to New Bedford after our marriage and we had an apartment there where we went to a party and I was ready to go home and there was no bill around. Where was my husband? And I asked several of the boys and they said, oh, we had to take him home some time ago. He's now in bed in your apartment. So when I got there, there he was, in bed with a big bucket at his head. <laughs> well, this was a terrific shock. I hadn't had any idea that he was drinking until this morning came along. And I wasn't too frightfully discouraged for the future, though, because I thought that living with me would be such a great inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> that he, 
But he wouldn't need any artificial something. Um, any artificial inspiration. So, time went on. And Bill's drinking kept getting worse. And living with me seemed to do nothing but increase the drinking. <laughs> we were very, very happy together, though. We had a, a unique camaraderie. I think that many husbands and wives do not unfortunately do not have we love to be together and as the years went on even though we went through some very very difficult and hard times I would have rather been with him drunk than away from him sober So we lived these 17 years together with many, many, many ups and downs, but always a feeling of belonging to each other and of this inner partnership. But his drinking, of course, got so that he was good for nothing, absolutely nothing but drinking. And he would stay home. While I went to work, I had to make all the decisions, be the support of the family. And watch this, my beloved husband, deteriorate into nothing but a, oh, I don't know, a sop or nothing. He didn't have any, any ambition to do anything but go to the liquor store and get liquor. And he, though, had wanted desperately to stop drinking. And for the last five or six years, his one, one idea was to stop, but he could not stop. He wanted with all the was within him to stop drinking. And he wrote in the Bible, way back in 1928, I promise you, my dear wife, never to take another drink. And he truly meant it, I believe. He had a disease which we did not really recognize, either one of us, an obsession which he could not overcome. And together we could not overcome it. But Something marvelous happened. And I'm sure you've all read it in the big book or the, about the marvelous spiritual awakening that Bill had. 
and our lives would change. I had one look at him when I went to the hospital where he was, and I knew something overwhelming had happened. And from that day on, I never, never had a doubt that he was through with liquor forever. And he never doubted. And so it was. He never drank again. <clears throat> and to go back a little bit and tell you what happened after this wonderful experience. He thought, well, I was able to sober up. I had a spiritual awakening. So could other people. And he went around the highways and the byways. He went to the hospital where he'd been. He went to the Oxford group of Emmy, the man who came and told him about his spiritual awakening. He went to the place where Emmy, the meetings that Emmy went to, they were the Oxford group meetings. He went everywhere and tried to get people to work on. And he brought them to the house. We were living in Brooklyn. My father had um, left the house to get married, but the mortgage company owned the house. And we had the large amount, I think it was $20. It may have been $40, I can't seem to remember which, that we paid a month for a five-room house, a five-story house in the city. But the mortgage company finally got him finally got a buyer. So then we had to get out. But that was in 1939. That was after a lot of water under the bridge. But um, in those years before we had to leave, um, we had the house full of dogs on every floor of the house. Alcoholics living. <laughs> and it was really a very exciting time. <laughs> we didn't let them stay if they were drunk. They had to be sober. And Bill got back and started to do some business. He'd been working on the stock, in the stock market. He was an analyst. He used to go to the, if he was interested stock-wise in a company, he would go to the plant of that company and investigate and assess its future of progress, whether it would be worth buying from a 
from a, a substantial um, viewpoint and not just from the, whether the stock market was going up or down. So he got a job in Akron to go to Akron to analyze a company that was in, in bankruptcy that was headed that way, the Roman Machinery Company. And um, he went there and he, he um, didn't have any success and the company wasn't, wasn't much. And uh, the people that were there with him, they all left. And he was in the Mayflower Hotel in Akron. And he had $10 in his pocket. And he, he was walking up and down the, the uh, aisles, of the, not the aisles, but the lobby. <laughs> I'm mixing my edifice. The, <coughs> the uh, lobby of the hotel. And uh, there was a bar at one end. And the people in there were jolly and laughing and having a good time. It was kind of tempting to it. But then at the other end, there was a church directory. And he remembered that the one thing that helped him before he came to Akron was helping other people, helping others sober up. So he said, what I need is some drugs to work on. So he looked at the church directory and he thought, well, ministers should know. Um, about drugs to work on. So um, <clears throat> he picked a funny name. Bill was very interested in words and in funny names. And this man's name was the Reverend Tonks. He thought that was a funny name, so he'd call him up. And he did call him up. And, call, and the Reverend Tonks knew just what he was talking about and said, I have just the person for you to see in the Oxford group, a, a woman who uh, is very, she knows lots of people, and I, she can help you find other, others, that somebody to help. So he gave her the name of Henrietta Cybelink. Bill didn't want to call it first because Cybelink was the name of a big tire manufacturer company. And he thought, well, what will a woman like that want to see a drunk like me on a Sunday afternoon? But he finally decided to do it, and he called her up. And again, he had understanding. Henrietta knew just what he was talking about. She was in the Oxford group, the same fellowship, same organization that Emmy, who had come to him earlier, was in. And she said, yes, I know just, just the person for you to talk with. So Henrietta called up Annie Smith, Bob Smith's wife, Dr. Bob's wife. And Annie said, oh, yes, we'd love to come, but we can't today. Today is Mother's Day, 
And Bob has brought home a plant. And it's on the table. But Bob is underneath the table. So, but we'll come tomorrow, Addie said, and they did. They came tomorrow, and of course Bob thought, oh, well, I'll just stay 15 minutes. But they stayed on and on, hour after hour, and talked and talked and talked. And there was something that happened between them. There was an understanding. And it was... A, a, they knew that they had something that they could do together. Well, Bob had to, uh, he, he was a, uh, a doctor, a, uh, well, I can't think what kind of a doctor he was, but anyway. Um, he used to go on a doctor's convention every, um, every year, Atlantic City. And uh, this was coming up, and Addie, his wife, didn't want him to go. She was afraid he might get drunk. But Bill said, yes, let him go. So he went, and he did come back drunk. (laughs) But, uh, But the first thing that... Addie and Bob, Addie and Bill knew was Bob wasn't there, and they didn't know where he was, and they were a little scared. This was the day after he returned, and when he came back, he said he'd made restitution. He'd been around to the people that he had felt he had harmed, and told them that he was an alcoholic and that he was sorry, and that any hurt that he had given them. So Bob had started on his own, the, on the principles of 12 steps of AA. So that's really when AA started. At least that's what it is for most of the people. It isn't for me because when AA started, it's when Bill sobered up in Clinton Street in Brooklyn. But they're really the founders of, of the fellowship when there were two people. The people that Bill worked with, some of them stayed at St. Stoma, but they didn't really stay sober um, long periods, and it's only, it's only Bob that stayed sober for the rest of his. I mean, of those early, early people. So... Um, Founders Day, I think it was the 10th of June, which is really two or three days here now, will be the anniversary. And uh, I'm going to go back a little bit and tell you about this sign because I kind of skipped over it earlier when I was telling you about the 
bills and investigated these different companies. This is while he was still drinking. This is way back in 1925. Um, Bill got this idea um, that um, if you wanted really to um, to purchase anything, you ought to find out all the details. His grandfather, when he wanted to buy a cow, Bill was a born up on the farm in Vermont, and his grandfather, when he wanted to buy a cow, would go out and investigate the cow, see how much milk it, it gave, and feel its legs and see if it was healthy. And so he believed that to buy a stock, you should go out and understand a little bit about the whole setup. So he had a job, and I had a job, and we, both of us gave up this job, our jobs, and took off on a motorcycle. Our motorcycle had a sidecar. And Bill didn't like to drive very much, and I loved to. <laughs> so Bill, who was six feet three, <laughs> his long legs over the hood of the sidecar. He couldn't get them inside because we had it all packed. We went, we packed all our belongings for a whole year. And went off, but he had his legs over. And I, of course, was a little peanut sitting on the driver's seat. So we were a funny looking rig. <laughs> but we lived nearly a year on this motorcycle. So that's why I belong to this. <laughs> and we had a wonderful time. And Bill really um, got started well in this stock market so that he made lots of money at one time before the 1929 crash. But then the crash did come and we, we lost everything we had, of course. <coughs> well, now let's see what I'm, where I'll jump to because I went back on that. I was telling you about the... Um, about the groups starting and after Bill went to Akron. And this is a, after, of course, many years later, after Bill sobered up, way back in 1935, he went. Bill sobered in 34, in December of 34, but he went to Akron in, in June of 35. Well, I think that really should 
Well, I haven't told you how I came. That's it. I knew there was something up. Well, after Bill sobered up, back at this time, 1934, that I was telling you about, we went to these Oxford group meetings that Emmy belonged to, and I went along with him. And I went along not because I thought I needed them. I'd been brought up with a good religious family. I had done everything I could think of to help my husband. I didn't feel I needed this spiritual program. But I I felt that Bill did. <laughs> so, I went along with him for his sake, not for mine. And then one day later on, when we had this house full of people, Bill said to me, uh, Lois, hurry up and get dressed now and let's go to the meeting. And I had a shoe in my hand and I I threw that shoe just as hard as I could and I said, damn your old meetings. (laughs) Well... was more shocked at myself than Bill was, I think. And I tried to figure out why. Why had I reacted so violently at a very simple remark of his? And it took me many, many years to figure it out and to realize that I needed the program just as much as Bill did, entirely for entirely different reasons, but I needed it. I was full of resentment. I had spent my whole life trying to help Bill sober, get sober, and it failed. Somebody else came along, and in two minutes, Bill was sober. <laughs> I was full of resentment at these people that had done something that I couldn't do, and jealousy. I hadn't let myself believe this. I have a great power of rationalization. I think maybe we all have. (laughs) But mine was very virulent. Anyway, I rationalized that I was so happy now that Bill was sober. But there must have been something, what was it, that was underneath that made me react violently. It was this, that I have these traits that I had tried to cover up. And... Um, 
not, re- not recognized at all. This resentment and, and uh, jealousy of other people doing something that I haven't done. And it took me a long, long time, as I said earlier, to really understand myself and to take my own inventory and to analyze my reasons behind why I did such a thing. Was it really a selfish reason, camouflaged or rationalized? I think we could do a tremendous amount of that. We Alamans, especially, can do a tremendous amount of rationalizing and not recognizing our own our own faults. So, in those early days of AA, there were no there was no literature. And if you wanted to start a group or help others to start a group, you had to go to the place. You couldn't send a pamphlet. You had to go. So we traveled a lot. We went all around the country um, as AA began to grow. And while Bill would be talking to the alcoholics, I would talk to the families. Addie Smith did this too, to quite an extent. But they couldn't, Addie was older, they were considerably older than Bill and me, and Addie was ill and she had poor eyes, and they couldn't get around. So they didn't travel the way Bill and I did. And while Bill was talking to the A's, I'd be telling the families about how I had discovered that I, too, needed to live by the 12 steps of AA, just as much, if not more, than Bill. That my, all my difficulties, my faults and things were far more subtle. His was obvious. And you know, it, it is very much harder for the family of an alcoholic to recognize their need than it is for the alcoholic. We have a tremendous, tremendous uh, prospective membership. In fact, we have practically the whole world. <laughs> But it's, we've been on the credit side and the alcoholic on the debit and that gives us a sense of superiority or something that we, um, we feel we don't need this, that we're a bit above it, that we, that we are already formed character that's all to the good. But that is not so. <laughs> We've suffered all kinds of, of, of disarrange, disarrangement during this time, trying to 
run their life, the alcoholic's life, is one of the prime things. Instead of leaving it up to the alcoholic to, uh, when he stumbles, to pick himself up. We've thought we could help, but instead of that, we've injured, we've harmed very much in our mistaken ideas of, of what helpfulness was. So, the Alamon program got to be formulated by degrees. And in 1951, Anne Bingham, who is here with me today, and I started writing to the 87 names of families of alcoholics who had written to the AA office asking for help. But the AA office didn't know anything about non-alcoholics. And they just answered a polite answer and filed the letters. But they had these 87 names. And Anne and I, and Bingham, you see there are two Anne's in this story. Anne Smith, way back in the early, early days, and Anne Bingham beginning in 1951. She helped me. She was a friend, a neighbor whose husband had been an alcoholic and she had had a, an Aldon group um, in our meet at our own house. You see, before 51, there were um, Aldon groups all over the country, but they were not called that. They were called the families of alcoholics or they were called... Um, AA Auxiliary. <laughs> they were called a lot of different things. <laughs> you could laugh at that a lot because the AAs did call them a lot of different things. <laughs> The A.A.s were a bit pleased at first with this <laughs> because they thought we were talking, telling their escapades behind their backs. <laughs> but of course that was one of the prime things we stipulated about the early, about all Aldon, was that this was for our own, our own program. We were talking about our own default, uh, faults, defects, um, and nothing about the alcoholic, not to talking about his defects, but our own. And that's a, one of the very prime principles of Alabama. 
Anne and I started, as I said, Anne Bingham and I started at her stepping stones upstairs in the upstairs room up there. And we wrote to these 87 names and we got 50 back, 50 answers. So Alaron really started with 50 groups. And um, pretty soon I and I were so busy that we thought we should move to New York. And the AAs, although they uh, uh, didn't really appreciate all of Alaron, but nevertheless, they let us use their clubhouse. In those days, it was quite the style for AAs to have clubhouses. And uh, we used to meet in the clubhouse in New York upstairs. This room had been the illustrators club at this building at one time. And it was built back from the street through a little alleyway that they, uh, the AAs called it the last mile. And we met upstairs there. And we started this uh, getting volunteers in. And then, um, well, Aladon has grown just terrifically. It's had the, it's had the uh, ground all plowed ahead of the time by AA. We just followed in AA's footsteps. We used their steps and their principles and their traditions, just applying them to our own problems and changing in wordage anything that needed to be changed. But AA had done all the groundwork and we just came along and reaped the benefits, so to speak. And our potential is unlimited. And I'm, I know that our three big A's, I'm just as sure of this as anything, have really a part, the power to change the whole world. We're in such trouble times these days, and our beautiful principles and our joy and our happiness are so much needed, and I think that they already have and will continue to have great, great power in changing this troubled world. I thank you.
thank you once again for a fantastic sharing and caring. I'm sure you will all agree Lois has given us a lot to go home with and to think about.